Greetings fellow travelers through the liturgical year. This is Lisa Davis with another Feast Day Quick Take. And I promise I will share what I have found about today's important feast day, but I wanted to start with a little preface about the liturgical year itself and how it's recorded on our calendars. And I know what some of y'all might be thinking, oh no, ugh, but there is no dry topic when you're talking about the saints. Even the nuts and bolts of printing a calendar is fascinating stuff and just helpful to know. Think of it, the beautiful calendars that we access for our Catholic lives, and God bless the sisters and those others who go to so much trouble to publish them. If you don't already have one, check the show notes for some links. But don't take these calendars for granted. They give us a bird's eye view of the history of mankind, captured month by month, week by week, a square a day, highlighting the best people and the best events, the most glorious of the supernatural gifts from on high, and the most awe-inspiring of the church triumphant, showcasing the most stalwart of the church militant. We see the dear heart of our beautiful Heavenly Mother. We see the life and death of her Divine Son. We see the whole life of the Church, page by page, as we travel square by square through our calendars. The liturgical year is a daily journey, each day especially equipped to honor the saints and seasons of the year of the Church, as precisely and carefully laid out by the Holy See, encompassing the traditions of the centuries and the additions and amendments as dictated by the divine will through the centuries of holy popes, reliable through the end of the pontificate of Pope Pius XII in 1958. Now, that sounds like a lot to ask from an 8x10 grid of the month, isn't it? Needless to say, of course, our calendars are just a jumping-off point to better things. In a secular way and in a spiritual way, it's not just appropriate but key that alongside dentist appointments and birthdays, we're reminded daily of our friends and models in the Church Triumphant, and on a practical level, I know I sure need the reminders of Catholic Life SOPs. For instance, that Fridays are marked with full fishes, which we know means that Fridays are days of abstinence from meat. All fish days must be observed by Catholics over the age of seven years. Complete abstinence days, full fishes, Besides Fridays are Ash Wednesday, Holy Saturday, and the Vigils of the Immaculate Conception and Christmas, except under the unusual circumstance when one of these vigils falls on a Sunday. So what about the half-fishes? This symbol shows us days of partial abstinence, again to be observed by Catholics over the age of seven, who have not received a dispensation of some kind from their pastor. Half-fish days allow for us to have meat and soup or gravy made from meat at the principal meal of the day only. So, meat once a day at the main meal. You can't have a piece of bacon for breakfast, then have a vegetarian main meal later on. And why does this matter, you might ask? Well, following the rules as the church sets them down is part of the sacrifice, and it's heaven's drill for learning discipline and self-sacrifice, something sadly lacking in our world today. The partial abstinence days of the year are Ember Wednesdays and Saturdays, and on the Vigil of Pentecost. 
all days that change every year, so we really do need to keep an eye on our calendars to keep up with them. You might notice that days of fast and complete abstinence are marked on our calendars with a fish that has the letter F on its side, so keep an eye out for those. If you're between the ages of 21 and 59, these days include the weekdays of Lent. Sundays are free days, as you probably know. The other days of complete fast and abstinence include Holy Saturday, the Ember Days, and the Vigil Days of Pentecost, the Immaculate Conception, and Christmas, unless they fall on a Sunday, of course. On fast days, only one full meal is allowed. Two other meatless meals, sufficient to maintain strength, may be taken, but together they shouldn't equal the full meal. And, of course, no snacking in between. If you are under 21, or over 59, you're excused from the fasting of Lent, but are obliged to follow the laws of abstinence. If you're over 7, ask your pastor regarding the fast for the ember and vigil days if you are not obliged to fast for Lent. There are exceptions to these laws of fast and abstinence in regard to pregnant and nursing mothers and those with health problems. Consult your pastor again if you have questions on whether the exceptions apply to you or someone in your family. These reminders are some of the most practical helps our calendars provide. It's good to be aware so we can plan ahead for fast and abstinence days. You'll also find, on many calendars, small images of the sacred and immaculate hearts to remind you of First Fridays and First Saturdays, which are easy to let slip by if we're not paying attention. See the show notes for links to explain these devotions if you're wondering about them. And then there are all those little initials, for lack of a better word, next to the noted feast days on each day of the calendar. What is that all about? I'll run through them. A capital M next to the name of a saint, as you might guess, indicates that he or she is a martyr. St. Prisca, whose feast day shares this day on the calendar, has a V next to her name, and tomorrow, January 19th, you'll see that Saints Marius and Companions have two M's which means that there are two martyrs commemorated on that day. You'll usually see and companions when there are more than two saints honored on a given day. The abbreviation EV means the saint of the day is an evangelist, one of the four writers of the Gospels, either St. Matthew, St. Mark, St. Luke, or St. John. V is for Virgin, as you see next to the M today by St. Prisca. This doesn't apply to the Blessed Virgin Mary. She has her own special category, which includes a V in the abbreviation BVM for Blessed Virgin Mary. But you'll find a V next to the name of any one of those holy women of God, chaste spouses of our Lord. There are many of these holy women. But for instance, besides St. Prisca today, we have St. Martina coming up on January January 30th, who also merited the letter M next to the V, distinguishing her as a martyr. St. Gertrude the Great, on November 16th, was a mystic, not a martyr, but mystics aren't specified in the calendar, so she is marked with only a V. If you're paying attention, you'll notice the letters P-E-N next to a couple saints on the calendar. This stands for penitent, and as you might guess, St. Mary Magdalene, July 22nd, is one of the saints who receives this distinction. St. Margaret of Cortona, February 22nd, our son William's special friend in heaven, is also known as a penitent. 
Throughout the calendar, you'll find women distinguished by the title Queen marked with a Q, like St. Matilda, March 14th, and St. Margaret of Scotland, June 10th. St. Margaret's Day is marked with a Q for Queen and a W for Widow, and St. Helen, August 18th, finder of the True Cross, mother of Constantine, is labeled with the letters EMP for Empress. St. Henry, July 15th, likewise is distinguished by the letters EMP, but for Emperor, of course, and St. Wenceslas, perhaps best known by the song Good King Wenceslas, September 28th, was not actually a king, but a duke, as is noted on his square on some calendars. If you notice a capital letter D next to a name on the calendar, that saint has earned the special recognition of the church as a doctor of the faith, one by whose writings on faith and morals the whole church has benefited. You can trust anything written by a doctor of the church. Ds are awesome. The letters AB stand for abbot, such as St. Antony of the Desert, whose feast day was yesterday on January 17th. I had hoped to do a quick take on this great saint, but ran out of time this year. Stay tuned next year. AP stands for Apostle, of course. The next apostle in the calendar is St. Paul, the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul, which is on January 25th. You probably guessed that B stands for Bishop. And you'll often find a B followed by a C for confessor, like St. William, Bishop and Confessor, on January 10th, or the Feast of St. Francis de Sales on January 29th, who actually has the letters B, C, and D next to his name, because he's not only a bishop and a confessor, but also a doctor of the church. If a bishop is a martyr, an M will follow the B, such as on the Feast of St. Boniface on June 5th. The initials P.R. next to the Feast of St. Valentine, coming up in February, stand for Priest. St. Valentine was a martyr, so his shorthand tag is capital P, small r, capital M. A capital P by itself stands for Pope. The next Pope on the calendar is St. Simplicius on March 2nd, our 47th Pope, also a confessor, which brings up a question. On many squares of the calendar, you'll see saints labeled as PC. Not, of course, because they were in any way politically correct. On the contrary, these pontiffs would be defined as being not politically correct, because these popes marked PC were also honored and renowned as confessors, signified by that letter C, which we mentioned. But what, you might ask, is a confessor. You might assume that if one is a pope, one would also ipso facto be a confessor, since a pontiff is required to be an ordained priest, and theoretically at least one who provides confessions, right? Well, right. But in this case, the word confessor has nothing to do with a sacrament, but refers rather to the meaning of confessor used since antiquity to describe those honored Christians who heroically confessed or publicly admitted and practiced their faith during times of persecution, but who had not been martyred. Over the centuries, the term has come to signify that they were heroic in the faith, regardless of whether it was during a time of specific persecution, but it underlined the fact that they were not martyrs. A confessor can be a priest, a religious brother, a pope, a bishop, or a layman like St. Dominic Savio, March 9th, who is a prime example of a wonderful secular confessor saint. 
A little more investigation into the pages of our calendar turns up a few other words and symbols that might not be familiar to everyone. I had to look up this next one to be sure of its meaning, though it's a common enough one in the Catholic lexicon. What word, you ask? Have you noticed the word feria? It's all over the calendar. But if you'd asked me to define it yesterday, I'd have made this face and given you a roundabout, vague response that might not have gotten me in trouble with my editors. Today, I can't say I quite understand the details of high and low ferias, but I can share the basics with some interesting highlights, thanks to ye old dusty and beloved 1909 Catholic Encyclopedia. First of all, the etymology of the word is fascinating. A feria, going back to ancient Roman times, was, quote, Latin for free day, a day on which the people, especially slaves, were not obliged to work, and on which there were no court sessions. When Christianity spread, the feria were ordered for religious rest, to celebrate the feasts instituted for worship by the church. The faithful were obliged on those days to attend mass in their parish church. Such assemblies gradually led to mercantile enterprises, partly from necessity and partly for the sake of convenience. This custom in time introduced these market gatherings, which the Germans called Messen and the English called fairs, that were fixed on saint days. End quote. How cool is that, that the word fair originates from feria, and had everything to do with the celebration of the Mass first, and then taking care of your shopping second. Remember these feria or fair days weren't on Sundays, when one did not, of course, carry on commerce, but you could meet with your friends after Mass and enjoy walking through the markets on a feria or fair day. Many Catholic countries maintain the tradition of commemorating beloved local saints in fairs and festivals, though the Catholic spirit of these celebrations has, for the most part, faded to a ghost of a memory. But not to worry, even if they don't remember, we do. Blessed be God in his angels and in his saints. The encyclopedia goes on to explain that the term feria eventually came to denote the five days of the week, differentiating them from Saturdays and Sundays, ultimately taking on the meaning that we know today, which on our calendars has nothing to do with fairs and festivals in the general sense. Imagine how many parties we'd have to throw if one were prescribed every time we saw the word feria on the calendar. Sorry, kids. It's actually the opposite. The Catholic Encyclopedia explains it this way, quote, Today those days are called ferial upon which no feast is celebrated. Feria are either major or minor. The major, which must have at least a commemoration even on the highest feasts, are the feria of Advent and Lent, the Ember Days, and the Monday of Rogation Week. The others are called minor. Of the major feria, Ash Wednesday and the days of Holy Week are privileged, so that their office must be taken no matter what feast may occur. End quote. So, in practice, a feria, or ferial day, is a weekday on which no special ecclesiastical feast is required to be celebrated, unless it's a major feria, when these days must be honored and not substituted for anything else. Primarily, this is in Lent. You might wonder, then, what happens on a day when there is no required observance? Invisible on the squares of every date on the calendar are saints who aren't on the official Roman liturgical calendar with specific masses, though many calendars will list one or two saints whose feast day falls on a ferial day, 
but aren't on the general calendar. A priest may choose to observe these feasts, or he may offer a Mass of the Blessed Virgin Mary, for instance, or a Mass for the dead. He'll usually tell you at the beginning of Mass if it's not obvious. Our calendar is full of intriguing peeks into the stories of the saints, some of them rather perplexing if you haven't heard the histories behind them. This is one of the beauties of getting to do feast day quick takes. If there were only more hours in the day, there is no end to the cool stuff we could investigate. It's like a treasure hunt, and the treasure we find is the real thing. Did you notice, for instance, last month on the 10th of December, the Feast of the Translation of the House of Loretto? Behind this square on the calendar is the true story of how the Holy Family's house in Nazareth was miraculously moved, carried by angels, lock, stock, and barrel to Loretto, Italy in 1294. If you've never heard about this, you really should go look it up. It's amazing. Then there's the mysterious Second Feast of St. Agnes. We'll be honoring the Feast of this Great Virgin and Martyr in a few days on the 21st of January. Then, again, seven days later, on January 28th, we celebrate, and I quote, the Feast of St. Agnes the Second Time. Stay tuned. We do have a quick take explanation about that one. Today's is one of those feast days, too, though, that might sound to the uninitiated rather odd. What are those Catholics doing now, some might wonder, worshipping a chair? You might have noticed that January 18th marks the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter, and there is indeed an ancient piece of furniture that the Church affirms was actually used by St. Peter and all his succeeding bishops of Rome through the centuries, but it's not the chair we're honoring. What we recollect and make clear by this feast day is the authority of the Vicar of Christ, and in particular on January 18th, the fact that Rome was the chosen and continuous seat of the Catholic Church from the time of Peter. The ecclesiastical seat of the Roman Pontiff has been the throne of every rightful Pope that has succeeded him for the last 2,000 years. The words ex cathedra translate directly to mean from the chair or from the authority of the successor of Peter. There is a lot that can be said about this subject that is actually best left to our learned priests. But still, so much to discover within the parlance of a layperson, Grandma, who's interested in church history and pretty furniture with a divine purpose. Because when I said throne, I was not kidding. Known as the Cathedra Petri, Latin for the chair of Peter, which etymology incidentally adds to the understanding of the word cathedral as the seat of any bishop of a diocese, the original chair of Peter, which was the first papal throne, still exists today. Located at the back of the apse of St. Peter's Basilica, it can be seen behind the famous altar beneath the stained glass image of the Holy Ghost depicted as a dove. And though it's been repaired and embellished over the centuries by every account and tradition of the church, it is in fact the original ancient chair used by the fisherman, the Apostle Peter, our first pope. The Catholic Encyclopedia describes it thus, quote, The seat is about one foot ten inches above the ground and two feet eleven and seven-eighths inches wide. The sides are two feet one and a half inches deep. The height of the back up to the tympanum is three feet five and one-third inches. The entire height of the chair 
is 4 feet 7 and 1 eighths inch. According to the examination then made by Padre Garucci and Giovanni Battista de Rossi, the oldest portion is a perfectly plain oaken armchair with four legs connected by crossbars. The wood is much worm-eaten, and pieces have been cut from various spots at different times, evidently for relics. To the right and left of the seat, four strong iron rings intended for carrying poles are set into the legs. During the Middle Ages, it was customary to exhibit the chair yearly to the faithful. The newly elected Pope was also solemnly enthroned on this venerable chair. In order to preserve for posterity this precious relic, Alexander the Seventh, who was Pope from 1655 to 1667, after the designs of Bernini, enclosed the Cathedra Patri above the absidal altar of St. Peter's in a gigantic casing of bronze, supported by four doctors of the church, St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, St. Athanasius, and St. Chrysostom. End quote. Isn't it a beautiful thing? A fitting symbol of the power and authority of the successor of the Prince of the Church, the Vicar of Christ. When God deems it the right time to restore the papacy, a true Pope will once again sit upon this throne of Peter. The final obvious question is, why do we have a feast for this? What made the Church set aside a day to honor the authority of the papacy? Abbot Garanger in the liturgical year explains it, quote, there must be some mark or sign of this succession to designate to the world who the pontiff is on whom to the end of the world the church is to be built there are so many bishops in the church in which one of them is peter continued this prince of the apostles founded and governed several churches but only one of these was watered with his blood and that one was rome only one of these is enriched with his tomb and that one is rome the bishop of Rome, therefore, is the successor of Peter, and consequently the vicar of Christ. It is of the bishop of Rome that it is said, Upon thee will I build my church, and again, to thee will I give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and again, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, do thou confirm thy brethren, and again, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Abbot Garanger continues, Protestantism strove to throw doubts on St. Peter's having lived and died in Rome. They who labored to establish doubts of this kind rightly hoped that if they could gain their point, they would destroy the authority of the Roman pontiff, and even the very notion of the head of the church. It was in order to nullify by the authority of the liturgy this strange pretension of Protestants that Pope Paul IV in 1558 restored the ancient feast of St. Peter's Chair at Rome, and fixed it on the 18th of January. For many centuries the Church had not solemnized the mystery of the pontificate of the Prince of the Apostles on any distinct feast, but had made the single feast of February 22nd serve for both the chair at Antioch and the chair at Rome. From that time forward, the 22nd of February has been kept for the Eastern Church, and, end quote, and January 18th commemorates the See of Peter and the authority of the Pope as the Bishop of Rome. About the chair of St. Peter, St. Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage, wrote in the year 251, quote, The Lord says to Peter, 
I say to you, he says, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And to you I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever thing you bind on earth shall also be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, they shall be loosed also in heaven. And again he says to him after his resurrection, Feed my sheep. On him he builds the church, and to him he gives the command to feed the sheep. And although he assigns a like power to all the apostles, yet he founded a single chair, and he established by his own authority a source and an intrinsic reason for that unity. Indeed, the others were that also which Peter was. But a primacy is given to Peter, whereby it is made clear that there is but one church and one chair. So too all are shepherds, and the flock is shown to be one, fed by all the apostles in single-minded accord. If someone does not hold fast to this unity of Peter, can he imagine that he still holds the faith? If he deserts the chair of Peter upon whom the church was built, can he still be confident that he is in the church? St. Cyprian further wrote, there is one God and one Christ and one church and one chair founded on the rock, Peter, by the voice of the Lord, et cathedra una super petrum domini voce fundata. It is not possible to set up another altar or another priesthood besides that one altar and that one priesthood. Whoever gathers elsewhere scatters. In A.D. 394, St. Augustine wrote, a stick that is cut from the vine retains its shape. But what use is that shape if it is not living from the root? Come, brother, if you wish to be engrafted in the vine. It is grievous when we see you thus lying cut off. Number the bishops from the See of Peter, and in that order of fathers see who succeeded whom. This is the rock which the proud gates of Hades do not conquer. One last interesting fact about this feast day. You might or might not have noticed, depending on your calendar and how closely you followed your missal and made the connection, but there is never a feast of St. Paul that does not somehow include St. Peter in the liturgy of the church, and vice versa. No St. Peter without St. Paul. You'll find St. Paul commemorated in the Mass today. Why is this? Though you'll hear the rumor that they were martyred on the same day, it's pretty much been proven that this isn't actually the case. And they were not equal. St. Peter was the undisputed head of the church, to whose authority St. Paul bowed. But they were equal in importance to the foundation of Christ's holy church. St. Augustine of Hippo wrote, Both apostles share the same feast days, for these two were one, and even though they suffered on different days, they were as one. Peter went first and Paul followed. And so we celebrate this day made holy for us by the apostles' blood. Let us embrace what they believed, their life, their labors, their sufferings, their preaching, and their confessions of faith. Amen. Following is the prayer to Saints Peter and Paul from the Recolta, confirmed by Pope Pius VI in 1778. One hundred days indulgence under the usual conditions, if said daily, followed by one pater, ave, and gloria. A plenary indulgence under the usual conditions, if it's prayed at a shrine or church dedicated to Saints Peter and Paul. O blessed apostles Peter and Paul, 
I elect you this day for my special protectors and advocates with God. In all humility I rejoice with thee, blessed Peter, Prince of the Apostles, because thou art the rock whereon God hath built his church. And I rejoice with thee too, blessed Paul, because thou wast chosen of God for a vessel of election and a preacher of the truth throughout the world. Obtain for me, I beseech you both, a lively faith, firm hope, and perfect charity, entire detachment from myself, contempt of the world, patience in adversity, humility in prosperity, attention in prayer, purity of heart, right intention in my works, diligence in the fulfillment of all the duties of my state in life, constancy in my good resolutions, resignation to the holy will of God, perseverance in divine grace unto death, that, having overcome by your joint intercession and your glorious merits the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, I may be made worthy to appear before the face of the chief and eternal Bishop of Souls, Jesus Christ our Lord, to enjoy him and to love him for all eternity, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost liveth and reigneth ever, world without end. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Blessed be God in his angels and in his saints. <laughs>